Hello, and welcome to another message from Aldinga Bay Baptist Church. If you'd like to find out more about us or what we believe, please visit aldingabaybaptist.org.au. Well, good. Oh, there we go. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's nice to see everyone here. i got to say, I've missed her having a microphone in front of me, but it's usually one of those, not one of these Madonna mics. So I'm not quite sure what to do with my hands. Uh, maybe I should have brought a guitar up here with me, and that would have made it a little bit easier. Um, but I just want to say before I begin, a big thank you uh, to this church in the way that you guys have taken Lil and I in, uh, that you've made us feel welcome, that you've enabled us uh, in our ministry, uh, and you've ministered to us as well uh, as we continue in our journey. Uh, so just a big thank you, especially to Andrew and Jackie, um, as pastor of this church. Um, we just want to say thank you um, for all the opportunities that have been given to us. So before I get started on Psalm 34, why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you again that we can gather here today as people of your praise, uh, that we're not just people who have been redeemed by you, although that is your great work. That we're people of your praise, that you've made us radiant uh, in your glory, and that's inescapable. That's something that people see. So we thank you that as we gather together, that you give us lips to praise you with, that you give us our experience to testify to your goodness. And we thank you for that, and we pray that it would be in service, that it would be in glory of your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, Psalm 34. is a psalm, has one of some of the best-known one-liners in the Bible, right? We just sung one. His praise will ever be on my lips. Or, as the ESV would put it, his praise will continually be in my mouth. Or, what about, O come, taste and see that the Lord is good. What actually lies behind these one-liners? Where do we fit into what it has to say? And what is David as the psalmist actually saying as a whole? I want to put it to you this morning that this is a work that shows a journey into the inner life of a Christian. Because the powerful thing about this psalm is its simplicity. And yet, on the other hand, that it doesn't skip a beat. In fact, It gives us a simple blueprint for how we can walk with God and how we can walk with each other. And it's my hope that what it can do for us as a community of believers is to help us look at what we need for our walk with God and what we don't need. See, I believe that this psalm doesn't just speak for us individually, but has a lot to say about how we gather and what our priorities should be when we meet. So, if this psalm feels like a journey into our inner lives, it reaches the very core of who we are as a people of God, but it does it publicly. What it does is show God's people, us, as a people of public praise. I mean, isn't this what we're doing right now? And yet, it's a strange, counterintuitive way that David uses to describe this journey into our inner lives that it does, it starts publicly. So, here's a psalm that's a journey to a rich and true inner life with God. 
And yet it starts with us, it starts in a congregation of God's people. And it calls everyone who hears it, I'm going to make the most of these one-liners because they're that good, it calls everyone who hears it to come, taste and see. So the psalm starts with a solo declaration. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You know that song that we just sung, Ever Be, and that chorus, and by the end of it, we actually know what it feels like for the praise of God to ever be on our lips. I think there's a time and place for repetition, and I think that song gets it right. I think David understands this as well. For David, praise is a physical act. It's on his lips. It's right there. But it's also a form of change. Even as he repeats it, he knows that the praise of God is powerful. It's going to change him. It aligns our hearts with God's and makes us glad. In fact, there's the invitation of verse 2. Let the humble hear and be glad. All of a sudden, we have more than just David on the scene because the praise of God has gone public. I think David knows why. Because he's just said that his soul makes its boast in the Lord. Is the reason why it's a public psalm of praise made to be heard in the presence of other people? Because there's no other choice. When David boasts in God, he knows it's a different look. When David puts his soul in the care of God, he knows this is going to draw attention, and he's not just going to waste it. So he invites others to come, to gather around, to join in with what he's already doing, magnifying and exalting God. See, here's the reason why he begins just with himself, just as a solo voice praising God. So that when others hear him, he can invite them to join in with what he's already been doing, magnifying exalting the Lord. See, David doesn't just praise God publicly for the sake of his own relationship with him, for his one-to-one relationship. For David, there's an understanding that God's glory has a wider reach than that, that it weaves through society, it weaves through communities in ways that we can't imagine, but we can recognise. So when David has gathered ears to hear by his own words, He invites others to join in, that God might continue the work that he started in him. And what is this work? It's the work of God, deliverance and salvation. Because the situation that David writes the psalm for is less than ideal. I don't know if you saw it out there, but it says, when David feigned madness in the presence of Abimelech the king. And there, are, there are some historical, historical discrepancies between uh, that situation uh, in 1 Samuel and um, the, the, the title up on the screen. But David is suffering in this situation. And my mind goes out, I'm an artist, I love music, I love all types of creative expression, and I know everyone, I think, has something that touches them. Um, And there's that myth in creativity, isn't it, of the suffering artist. You think of Vincent van Gogh or someone like that. The artist who all his life was rejected, was suffered, um, and then at the end of his life, gender tragically, 
He was recognised for his great contribution to how we see the world. And I think we tend to diminish the suffering of David. I think David suffered, he suffered greatly. But it makes it all the more real that this psalm of heartfelt praise comes out of such a tough time. See, if you don't know the story, the book of 1 Samuel tells it. David's fleeing Saul, his own king, for fear of death. And he comes into the presence of Abimelech, an enemy king. So he's in between a rock and a hard place. He's been thrown out of the fire into the frying pan. And so he puts himself to shame. He disfigures his face. He, he pretends to be mad. Uh, there's saliva dripping down his face. Um, that he might not be thought of as a threat. And instead the king throws him out of his presence. He says, why should he be here? I think verses 4 and 7 tell the story from David's point of view. You see, even when David pretends to be mad, and it's hard to tell how exactly he's truly seeking the Lord. What it is clear is that God does the work for David, the work of salvation for those who seek him. It's as simple as that. I think the Bible is one big consistent witness for God and for his salvation towards those who seek him. David also says that he was delivered. This is something that we'll touch on later down the tracks of this journey, this son's journey. But the next verse picks up on the idea of his face being radiant, even though it was covered in saliva at the time. But it's not about where he is, it's about the fact that he seeks the Lord, that he looks to God. Because in verse 4 he says, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This idea of our helplessness before God and his salvation coming to us just by looking to him is so important that David says the same thing again. David casts himself in verse 5 as this poor man who cried and the Lord heard him, who saved him out of all his troubles. You see, David's testimony in his praise isn't really about himself. It's all about the work of God in his own life. That in his need and his distress, the angel of the Lord encamped around him because he feared God. See, this is the good, important news of David's time, and it's the good and important news of our time as well. And I think for many of us here, this is the news that we know ourselves. Maybe you don't. And I hope that being here today, you can hear the gospel story and see how it's lived out in our own community. But for us who do not, sometimes we're just not sure how to describe it to others. We're not sure how it really affects our own lives. And so verse 8, I think, is the foundational image for understanding why this is a public psalm of praise. And it reminds me, actually, of a lunch that Lil and I had not too long ago with some friends from Hobart. It was my 25th birthday, turned 25 not too long ago, if you can believe that. And uh, our friend from Joel Hobart, our friend from Hobart, Joel, was turning 30. And we had lunch at one of those places that you walk out of, your pockets are a little lighter, but your belly's a little fuller, and you feel like it was a fair exchange. 
but it wasn't one of those places that you share your food. Everyone had their own plates. Well, that fell apart, didn't it? Come main course, because we just had to taste and see. We had to taste and experience. We cut up pieces of our delicious meals to offer to each other, tasted everything that meant the menu had on it, and felt like we didn't have a choice. And can I say, in a, in a fancy restaurant, that's a bit of an undignified thing to do. But we just had to share. And there's this, this one picture in my head that I can't get out of, and maybe you've had the same experience. You've got something on your plate, you have to, you have to try this to say to other people. And your eyes are expectantly on them. You're ready to affirm the deliciousness of the meal. You're ready to affirm its quality, the joy it brings in eating it. I wonder if you had an experience like this. I think this is the image that the psalm provides. And yet, as much as God is like a delicious meal, he's so much more. I mean, God doesn't disappear like a meal when we share him. In fact, he's made bigger. Isn't that what David has just sung? Magnify the Lord with me. The goodness of God can't be neatly arranged into a pie chart, split the way that we feel is in order to our own relationship with him, to our own picture of God. No, God's plan for us is to share him. And how much more willingly would we do it if we knew that our own view of God would become larger than when we did? See, I think in all the invitations that David offers to others who hear him, he also offers it to himself. And this is the nature of God. His goodness continues to overflow. And in sharing his praises with each other, our love for him continues to grow in knowledge and depth of insight. So we continue along the journey of the psalm. And if this was a church service, if this psalm was a church service, David's just sung the opening song, hasn't he? He called everyone to worship. And now I can imagine him sitting everyone down, and he wants to teach. He wants to teach the way of God. Because he doesn't want his praise just to stop at people's ears, but at their hearts. And it's interesting that he steers away from his own personal experience and focuses on the word of God. He sits his audience down and tells them in verse 9, Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. You see, David isn't just content with praising God and leaving it there. There's a next step, and that's following in his way. So I want to suggest that there are two approaches here and that they work together. And I also want to point out that they're attitudes, they're postures to take, not practicalities. So here they are, fear and peace. Let's start with fear, the fear of God. I wonder if that strikes fear into your own hearts, hearing that. Being in awe of him, acknowledging with humility our own part to play in his sovereign will. Other places in the Bible describe the fear of God as the beginning of all wisdom. And yet elsewhere, the fear of God is departing from evil. And so there's a two-sided idea here, there's a two-sided approach. 
and it's the mark of our walk as Christians. It's that the fear of God is both a beginning and an end. It's an end to ourselves, to our inadequacies, to our sin, and it's a beginning to the rich life that God has to offer, where we lack no good thing. For fear is the total claim of God upon us, and for us is the total life response to God. And on the other hand, peace. David says it's inherent to us, but we don't know how to grasp it. So he gives us, it's almost, I know there's no such thing as a stupid question, but it's almost a stupid question, but a rhetorical question at least. What man is there who desires life, loves many days that he may see good? That's all of us, isn't it? I mean, from time to time, sin corrupts our desires, but there's a longing in us all to have the good life. To not finish before our time is through, to do good with what we've been given. David calls everyone to attention by this question. And then he says, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. But this isn't enough for David. He urges us again, turn away from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. So, peace, peace with God, peace with each other, is the good life. It means that the days that we have count. It means that we do good things with what we have. But peace isn't just attained, it's not bestowed upon us, it's not nirvana, it's constructed. David says, turn from evil, do good, seek peace, pursue it. The same two-sided idea of fear comes up again, and this is where I think the psalm asks questions of our own lives as members of this church. I wonder how much we think of these two attitudes when we gather together. Are we humbly acknowledging our part to play in God's plan? Are we departing from our own inadequacies and responding to the invitation to construct a true, proper worship of the God who hears the humble, doesn't put us to shame, but makes us radiant. He makes us inescapable in his glory. You know, so often I think the church does a great job, and so often I stand uh, in front of you and send its members into the week, often like a catapult. But we, like those projectiles, often come to a halt. So what happens when Sunday morning rolls around again, which it inevitably does? Because I think sending is biblical. It's the gospel. It's the great commission in our own backyard. But we're running on fumes if we don't know why we get together and how we respond to this invitation to praise. And so here's just one way that I think it's relevant. You know, we talk about the threat, the temptation of living a double life. And I think this is especially relevant to younger people here today. But as I get older, not that much older, uh, but as I get older, I find it doesn't become any less relevant. We talk about the threat, the temptation of living a double life, where the Sunday versions of ourselves aren't the same as the week-by-week people, day-in, day-out people, what we call it to be. 
Here's one way to think about it. What if we've got the order wrong? What if our attitudes, our postures, like I explained fear and peace to be? What if it's not that they disappear after Sunday, but they're not even there, that we're closed on Sunday? That we shut up shop, go on home, before we even get a chance to open? See, I'm not talking about opening up just by raising our hands in church in response to worship. Although, can I say that we're free in Christ? Uh, or having exactly the right words to say, to encourage or support one another in prayer. Although, again, I'm glad to be a church who doesn't shy away from this. I said that these attitudes of fear and these postures, they're not practicalities. And I have faith, like David, like many of us here today, that to submit to God with fear and to seek his peace actively will mean praising him in a way that others will see. But like David, this praise has got to be all about the saving work of God, that he redeems us and that he sets us apart for his glory. So I'm not going to make any suggestions about how we do it, because I don't have the answer. That's lucky. Uh, but I do know that come 10 a.m. on Sunday, if we come as a people prepared to worship God with fear and peace, if we come prepared to acknowledge our place before God and seek his peace, his way to be with others, those things will lead us in the way that God has set out before us. So it sounds like a lot of striving, doesn't it? Sounds like a lot of effort, getting everything in the right spot. To me, it kind of sounds like the first time I tried to drive a manual. Making sure that you know you've got every moving part in the right spot before you even think about going forward. But there's a key. There's the inner life, and here the psalm reaches it. There's the true and rich place that is in us when we look to live according to God's way. Righteousness. See, it's not of our own strength that we can come before God and be righteous. We can't get everything in its place. It's not of our own thoughts, words, or actions. In fact, the psalm says that pretty quickly. The psalm says life is going to be too much for us at times. We'll be overwhelmed to tears. We'll be beat down. We'll be brokenhearted. We'll be the ones in the middle of the trouble. But when the going gets tough, God looks out for us. His eyes and ears are toward us. He's near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. He delivers the righteous out of trouble and keeps us. The one thing I love about Aldinga uh, is church coming. Uh, on Sundays we get to hear a lot about the sovereignty of God. That's one big thing that we're on about. And I think in his sovereignty, God is not just in charge of everything, he's concerned about everything. That includes you and I. Includes this whole world because his concern for his creation meant that even though we aren't good, that we can't get everything in order. 
Even though we're the opposite of how he saw his world as he finished making it. But we pit ourselves against him, even though there's death coming our way, he showed his concern. And it showed up in Jesus Christ. And Jesus shared that same sovereign concern as his heavenly Father. You see, Jesus had eyes and ears towards the downtrodden. Jesus drew near to the brokenhearted. Jesus saved the crushed in spirit. Jesus' love and concern were rooted in fear and peace. So much so that as he went to the cross to turn us back from death, to make us righteous, to give us life, he prayed, Father, take this cup from me. He said, Father, take this task away from me because he knew how much he would suffer. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. His dedication, his whole life response to God's will meant that he had peace, even though as he was led to suffer death. And so in doing this, he took death's devices, he took sin's shame, he took its humiliation, he took the way that it separates us from God, divides our relationships, and he did away with it by dying on the cross. In the full knowledge that God would redeem him, that he would redeem the life of his servant, that he would raise up his son. And in Jesus Christ, there is the invitation for us all to take refuge in him. Reminds me of that song, When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there, your name and end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We're counted free. Not only are we counted free, we're counted as family, as those who can share in the kingdom. You see, the kingdom of God is here. Jesus brought it. His new life is here. And we can respond by putting off our old selves and walking in the way that he set before us. Because, like I said at the beginning, the Bible is a testimony of God's saving grace towards those who seek him. And I think all that we can do, all that we have to do, is to have fear and peace. Because that saving grace bubbles up inside us. It's a well of life forever and we can tap it. We can draw from it. We don't do so by our own efforts. We do it by submitting our lives to him who gave us his own. But we would never go without, but be free to praise God with our own lips forever. But we can say with real knowledge, real experience of the living God who has given us life, we can say to others, come, taste and see. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this real life. We thank you, in the, we thank you for the way, the path that you set before us. And we thank you for the strength that you've given us in Jesus to follow. We pray that our hearts before you, that our attitudes and our postures would be ones of fear and peace. That we, would acknowledge, that we would acknowledge the 
total call of your of you on us. That we that we are called to submit everything to you. And in doing so, follow your way and construct your peace in your kingdom here on earth. And we pray those attitudes would be planted deep down in us. That would be day in, day out people of Christ. I pray all of these things for the glory of Jesus Christ, saving work accomplished it all. Amen.